Hello, and welcome to Cultural Conversations with the International Hub. We are committed to helping you navigate global business. Throughout this series, we will have conversations with global business professionals and experts. Hello, my name is Dylan Pappenfuss. Today I'm going to be talking with Professor Jim Oldroyd about innovation and what we can learn from the third world about it. Sure. Professor Oldroyd, will you just briefly tell us what, what is innovation? It's such a, such a buzzword today. It's kind of like synergy where I don't think we really, we use it so much and it's such a buzzword that we've lost sight of what it actually is. Yeah, so I, I think of uh, innovation as, you know, a significant change in product, uh, but you know, what's interesting is traditionally or historically when we looked at innovation, it was coming up with a new product or, or new service, mm -hmm. new feature. And we're getting a lot of innovation in what I call business model innovation. So it, rather than actually changing the product or feature, we change the way in which it's delivered to customers. And that also can, can be innovation. So, you know, I, innovation in general is just changing the way that we, you know, coming up with something new, changing the way it's delivered, change offering a new product, or even just uh, changing the way we charge for it can be innovation. Uh, and it's really what drives the world's growth is our innovation. So really important. That's fascinating. Um, so it's the main innovations we're seeing are kind of like the, uh, the uh, double entry accounting style from back in the uh, Renaissance era. That's right, that's right. So we're seeing stuff on, on both sides, both customer facing as well as yeah. just, you know, business side uh, changes. Things. Mm -hmm. So what do we have to do to, Cause, because while business process innovation is important and it's good and it's what makes good companies great, um, that innovation doesn't really lead to lasting economic growth or revolutionize the world. Yeah, so when I think of innovation, I often uh, in class will talk about um, like the Wright brothers, for mm -hmm. instance, you know, and people have this vision of them saying we want to build an airplane and then kind of just doing it. But if you dig into what they what it actually took for them to do it, they basically studied everything they could find, literally everything that was written on an airplane. They, they uh, researched it. Then they started a bicycle shop because they figured that a bicycle was the closest thing to what they had in, envisioned for, for flying. And they would, uh, in Ohio, they would run outside the bicycle shop anytime they heard uh, the geese flying overhead so they could watch them. And kind of the, the what they realized that many others failed to realize was the banking effect of birds. So when a bird flies, it doesn't turn like a car turns, and everyone was trying to turn like a car turns, and they realized, no, you have to bank, which is exactly what you do on a bicycle. So it's very similar, you know, you're leaning, the leaning effect. And that, that um, along with some other innovation around uh, propellers and wings, so their propeller was actually just a wing in the front. So they, you know, had some really cool... Uh, insight and realize that banking was how you were going to get uh, an airplane to turn. But the cool part about it was how much energy and effort it took to to actually pull off what we call in innovation. And often we, we just, so I, the other example I use is uh, Newton sitting there and an apple falls on his head. 
and he comes up with the theory of gravity, which is a, a cute story, but it's total garbage. Um, the reality is, is he invented calculus, <laughs> uh, read everything he could find, um, wrote you know three treaties, uh, three mathematical treaties on you know in, inventing calculus mm-hmm. as he's writing this, and twelve years later, he you know has integrated theories and comes up with the the, the theories that we know and love from Newton. So uh, towards the end of his life, a reporter was there asking, you know, how, how did you come up with this? And he says, it's as if an apple fell on my head. And so they write that up. And now pretty soon we, we have the story that he was sitting there and an apple fell on his head when in reality it was, you know, 20 years plus of painstaking work. And that's how innovation happens. So that's, mm-hmm. you know, so part of what I love about emerging markets is they're not afraid of the hard work to to get things to change and, and to really have impact. And so part of that's just the, the nature of the environment in which they're operating in forces them to be really innovative in the sense that they have to figure things out. They have to just mm-hmm. put it forth a, a, a lot of hard work, and but that hard work can come together in some really cool and I think unique products. And maybe even more importantly, uh, innovations that are fundamentally changing the, the cost of things. It's fascinating. Um, would you briefly, uh, or I guess, would you, what are some of the factors that are making them, what are the things that are forcing them to innovate? And then what are some examples? You mentioned that there are some new yeah. products or services. So, so this, I started really thinking about this in a, you know, sophisticated way when I, I invited uh, someone to come to my class when I was teaching at Ohio State. And um, the, the discussion was around if I'm Kraft, Mondelez, and I'm trying to sell cookies internationally, what is this, what, how do I do this? You know, because a sleeve of Oreo cookies in the U.S., which is a, you know, a trivial expense for most people, turns out to be a significant expense. And so if you're a consumer packaged good company and you're trying to sell something in East Africa, it could represent a person's you know, entire spending for the day or even for the week. And so then how do you, how do you think about that? And, the way we traditionally think of innovation would be I make a different flavor or I'm going to do a peppermint one around the holidays and then I'll do a green one for St. Patrick's Day. And, you know, that's kind of innovation. Yeah. And that, or Peepstring Easter. Exactly. And, and that kind of innovation is completely irrelevant in, in East Africa. I mean, I shouldn't say completely. It's, you know, one in a million individuals could actually afford to care about that kind of, yeah. uh, but they are very interested in quality food and in snacks and, and those things. So, you know, how do you think about uh, providing or uh, new products or innovating when there's so much uh, pressure to reduce the price, to reduce the cost, and yet deliver high value at the same time? And so what I love about looking at emerging markets is they are they're forced to uh, really innovate in cre- in bringing new mar- uh, new products to market, and so some of the, some of the examples that I that I you know probably are, are well are more well known are like the uh, Tata Nano. So Renan Tata is riding in India one day and sees a family on a motor scooter in the rain and thinks this is ridiculous. We can come up with a better solution for a family. And so he 
puts together a team of engineers at Tata Motors and says, please develop a car for one lakh, mm-hmm. which is about uh, $1,700. And they spend five years and rethink the way, you know, the traditional way we think about cars and really, uh, you know, for basically one fourth the, the price of a, of what was the lowest price car at the time, they they develop a car that works and it works well. And, you know, there's been a few issues with it. Uh, they Some marketing blunders and, you know, some engineering problems early on, but, but by and large, it's a great car. Like it works well, it's sufficient for, you know, I, so I've been in the Himalayas and seen them driving up and down the mountains just fine. They, they're, it's a great car. Um, but to me, it just took somebody changing their mindset, you know, so it's here in the West, we have this mentality of abundance. And so often when we're thinking of innovation, we're thinking of, I don't really care what it costs. Let's come up with something really cool, which is fine. And that works for about a third the world's population. But for the, the rest of the world's population, that's not the right mentality. You really have to have a mentality of how can I get the cost down you know, and not by 20%, but by half or by 80% or 90% or more. And when you start to have that mentality, then you can start to think about ways of delivering value that I think will change the world because it resets our current thinking. You know, a car costs $10,000 until it doesn't, you know, and then uh, Tata says we can do it for $2,000. And that's, that's, uh, that's the kind of cool innovation that I think is occurring in emerging markets. Yeah, so they fundamentally change the game with these innovations. They they create their own rules based on what they see in their environment. Yeah, and you know, and they're aided by I mean, they don't have to come up with what is a car, like what is an yeah. automobile. That already exists, but they're they're they pause and rethink why does it exist as it currently exists? And then you can start to rethink, okay, what is that what what actually is necessary and useful and what is just part of path dependency so you know why why does it exist in its current form may not be the best um you know it's maybe just because people made decisions and those decisions might have not have been thoughtful or strategic Mm -hmm. that's interesting kind of like what we're seeing with the uh the trend of micro brands and watches where they're saying we can make this product for significantly cheaper similar quality yet still sell it and make a tidy profit yeah, and so it resets the entire like thought process in in an industry. It's fascinating. Yeah, so with with the Tata Nano, you get uh, Suzuki, Honda, Hyundai, uh, Bajaj, other automobile automobile manufacturers watching the Tata Nano and realizing if we could get a car at three thousand dollars or thirty five hundred dollars, we could you know that's a we could open a huge market at that uh, price point. And so they've all rushed into that spot. You know, Honda has one for $4,500. Bajaj has one for $3,000, which is another Indian uh, automaker. Uh, so just, you know, the, once it's kind of like once they ran the four-minute mile, then people thought you can run that yeah. fast. And once they said, we can make a car for $2,000, other car makers said, well, maybe we can do it too. Yeah, And they aren't quite as low, but they're you know, just a little, a thousand dollars more, and they're actually quite nice vehicles. So it resets our, you know, the new standard. 
Yeah, I mean, buying a Honda in the U.S., you cannot find one for $4,500. No, no. And that's too bad because there's probably a big market, you know, for mm-hmm. for that. So, But not as big as in India. No, I mean, they're... I mean, it's hard to beat a market of a billion yeah. plus. Exactly. And, you know, there's lots of places where a car with 623 cc's is plenty big. You know, you don't yeah. need to go 80 miles an hour. You need to go 50. And, the, you know, and the, it works. You know, gets great gas mileage. And you're not in the rain when you're riding on it. So It's true. You get all the benefits that you need, that they need from a car, not that we need. So is that the is that the understanding that a lot of American exporting companies need to have is that we don't need to provide an American product yeah, so to a global I, market but So when I watch most US companies when they try to go international they try to find consumers that are like that are that they th- they they feel would like their product or they're trying to find consumers that they can train to like their products. Mm-hmm. So with enough advertising, we can get them to like it. Uh, rather than going and doing the in, the reverse of that or the inverse, which is going and finding out what what does this customer's life look like mm-hmm. and how could I add value to their life? And it's a very different mentality, right? One is I'm, I'm taking what I know well and I'm putting it in other markets. So I'm expanding to other, uh, different markets. The other is saying there's potential in other markets. Let mm-hmm. me go learn do the hard work of understanding what's actually needed in that market, and then how can I provide value? And the companies that are spending the time, which, so like um, Unilever, P&G, those companies are doing it right in my mind in that they're going into countries uh, and spending time trying to find out what actually works, what, what are customers currently doing, and then how can we provide more value to them Mm -hmm. and so they'll sell things in much smaller packet size than you know this isn't going to costco and buying two liters of dish soap this is buying a a half an ounce of dish soap yeah um but that's what people can't afford and that's what they're used to buying that's the price point they're used to and so you're not trying to redo their lifestyle you're saying how can i fit in their lifestyle with a great product um and you start to think of Significantly about how can I get my price, my costs down, so that I can actually deal uh, in this market. That's fascinating. Yeah. So usually I, I give the analogy um, if I talk to somebody in a industrialized country and I say you're walking down the street and you see a penny on the ground, do you pick it up? And 99% of people won't even bend down to pick up a penny. You take it to a nickel, you'll maybe get you know 10, 15% willing to bend down. Go to a quarter, maybe half will bend down. You go to a dollar, you'll probably get you know 80% of people willing to bend down to pick up the dollar. In a similar manner, these uh, con- these companies from industrialized nations walk along and they see these consumers that are willing to pay a penny, and they're like, "We can't service you." I'm willing to pay a nickel. Sorry, I'm not interested. Quarter, not interested. Okay, a dollar, maybe I'm interested, but I really want you to give me ten dollars. Um, so it takes a rethinking of of their approach to life, mm-hmm. which is I've got to bend down and pick up pennies. When then you have to start to think about how do I service customers that are only giving me a penny, and it's a it's a very different mentality. But there's been a lot of 
companies in the West that have had this. So McDonald's, for instance, says, I'm not going to treat you very well, treat you good enough, and but I'm going to provide a low-cost meal to you. So then that's, you know, that provides great value and people get used to it and they're like, it's, that's what I'm expecting. That's what I expect. Uh, but so it just takes a rethinking of what, what is uh, acceptable or what, how can I uh, make my process efficient enough that I can actually pick up pennies? In other words, I, I can service customers who aren't willing to pay very much and they still have a good experience and I still make money. So that, that of course, uh, I think that's an important lesson for comp- or multinationals looking to do business abroad. How can we apply that mindset domestically? I mean, we're, we're seeing companies that are excited about, you know, 5% revenue growth or like a 10% reduction in COGS. But I mean, real innovation isn't just a 10%. It's, it's dramatic. Yeah, I you know I think um, to me that's what's fun when you look at these uh, emerging markets is they're doing things that are like fundamentally shifting um, price points. So the the Tata Nano is an example. My favorite company uh, right now in the world is probably Aravind Eye Centers in in India, and it started out in the '70s with the with almost a social mission to alleviate blindness. And a couple started a, a couple hospitals and eye centers and clinics, and realized that many of their um, customers couldn't afford to pay. So they they thought long and hard about how can we get the costs down mm-hmm. significantly, and they turned it into a very um, so medicine has historically been kind of high touch, um, high expense. Uh, everyone's unique, everyone's different. Let's think very carefully about this, uh, you know, almost like a, a premium offering on everything. And Arvind said, we're going to approach eye care with, with extreme efficiency. That's our goal. And so they, they changed it, much like McDonald's changed food. We're going we're gonna to crank out hamburgers, and they're going to be pretty good quality, reasonably quality at a very low price, and Aravind says we're going to do the same thing for eye care. We're going to we're going to crank this out. And so they do things like position the beds just far enough apart so that the doctor can just uh, swing the scope back and forth. Is doing surgeries from one table to another uh, with a quick hand wash in between. So there's no um, you know they're not spreading any disease. Um, but by doing that, the surgeons crank out a huge number of surgeries a year. Uh, usually, you know, a factor of four or five, six times as many as other surgeons. Well, when you do that many surgeries, you get really good at what you do. It turns out that, that eyes are pretty standard, and so there's an, an occasional case that's really difficult, but on average, it's, it's just really not that complex, you know, says a layman who doesn't, but it's, it's not. I mean, it's a pretty standardized uh, product. And so they're able to just crank it out with uh, with high efficiency, and when they do that, they can get the cost down significantly. And so they are able to make money, even just charging a very very nominal fee for eye surgery. And and the the best part about it is their outcomes are so good. They get you know their outcomes are better than you would get in a industrialized country 
just because they do so many of them. They're, the surgeons are phenomenal and they have a very efficient process to help with recovery. And so they can get eye care uh, at one one hundredth the cost we can deliver in the U.S. and have outcomes that are comparable, probably better. So, I mean, I feel like a, uh, a layman would hear that and they would say, why can't we have that in the U.S.? I mean, our, our costs are out of control. Well, I think it partly we could have it here mm-hmm. if, if we... Uh, if we realize that the solution to our problem is not more care but less, if you will. So mm-hmm. it's not that it's not that we're not getting enough care in the U.S. It's that we're getting uh, premium care even when premium care isn't needed. So everyone likes to go to a nice restaurant once in a while. You expect premium care there. When you go to McDonald's, you don't. And the reality is, is more people go to McDonald's than go to nice restaurants. And the reason why is it's good enough. If we had a choice in our health care, if you could go to a, a get eye care for $5 or you could go to eye care for $500 I and they were comparable quality, I have a strong suspicion that the $5 place would be much, uh, have a lot more customers than the $500 place. The $500 place still would have some customers, but the $5 place would have hundreds and thousands of customers. Uh, and we don't. We the reason why we don't get that in the U.S. is there's we lots of things. First, we lack incentive. So if I'm an eye doctor in the U.S., what's my incentive to truly try to get down costs? None. Yeah, I'm. I'm not. Most of the time, uh, I'm. I'm going to get paid through insurance. Yeah. Insurance. Has a, it takes me a lot of energy. I probably spend as much time trying to get paid as I did doing the work, so that makes it hard to get paid. Uh, the the systems in place such that the the people paying for most medical procedures aren't the ones that are actually so they pay through insurance, yeah. which means they pay a monthly fee and they don't really care what the procedure costs. And even if they do, it's not transparent, so it's hard to know what they what it costs. Like if I were to schedule a corneal surgery at the hospital, I would have a hard time knowing before I went in how much I was going to have to pay for that surgery and how much I was going to pay for each component of that. It would be, it'd be almost impossible to price. So how, how, as, a, how as a customer can I, can I reward efficiency when I, don't even, when I can't even observe it? It's just not there. So I, I have no idea what's efficient and what's not, and so then I can't choose it versus retail. Like if I'm buying clothing, it's very easy for me to look at two shirts, to look at their quality and look at the price and decide uh, amongst those which to buy. And discount stores do very well because it turns out they offer a pretty good product for a low price. And if you're willing to not have great service, you can get a you can get a nice shirt for, for very cheap. Or you can go to a, a high-end real uh, retailer and buy an expensive shirt and pay a lot of money for the service you get when you're buying it. Uh, it's, so it's, you know, we, you know what you're getting. If you go to an eye doctor, you go to anyone in healthcare, you don't know, you have, there's no transparency as to the quality you're getting, nor is there transparency as to the prices that you're going to be charged along the way. And so it makes it really hard for us to, as consumers, to choose. Um, and so 
you know, if you if you remember uh, a few years ago in credit cards, they passed legislation saying you have to have a very similar template when you're ed- trying to educate your customers on what are your rates, what are the fees, uh, and everyone now has that kind of standard sticker, if you will, on the side of the credit card. Why can't we have something similar in healthcare? This is what the fees are. This is what it's going to cost. You know, it would be very easy to have that kind of thing posted on the door, and people would know as they walked in. And we don't like to pay for um, service we don't feel is important. So if I went into McDonald's and they said, I'm going to put down uh, cloth napkins and put a tablecloth and a candle on the table for you, I would say, no, thank you. Let's, let's just keep the cost low. I'm willing to eat cheaper food. I'm willing to eat this food at a lower price for not great service. Let's let's keep that contract in place. So the closest model I can think of that right now is uh, is airlines. I mean, airlines very clearly has they a lot of just stripped it down to the bare minimum. But then there are all these added on things that you can get, and also business class. Yeah, and you can lucky. fly you can fly Singapore Airlines or you can fly Southwest Airlines. And they're, you know, you, you're choosing a price point uh, and you know what kind of service you're going to get. It's, they're fairly transparent in what they're offering. And it turns out Singapore Airlines does very well and so does Southwest. And so, and I, I'm not saying that if we, if we made it uh, transparent for customers in medical that the high end would go away. I don't think mm-hmm. that's true at all. I think what would happen is people would actually be able to select what matters to them and be able to determine how they're going to allocate their dollars. And we would see more health care, not less health care, at a much lower price point. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the big uh, themes of this discussion is that we need to know what people want and we need to give them that information. That seems like a very important part of the innovative process. I, it is. And, I, and again, just, just that's the hard work of innovation. Mm-hmm. And so Western companies trying to go to emerging markets will hire a consultant or they'll uh, fly over for a short period and try to guess, what, try to pretend like they really know what that market looks like. And it never works. The mm-hmm. reality is, is you, have to, you have to do what the Wright brothers did in every market with which is invest time and energy and money and go and figure it out. You have to learn it in a very sophisticated and real and deep way. And once you do that, then then maybe you can start to add value in that in that local market. And I, I, I think part of the problem of of companies in developed markets is they think they've got it right. And they're just waiting for those consumers to get wealthy enough to buy what's right. And instead of thinking, what could, what could I learn that's going on in this market and maybe bring that back to my market? So it's a very kind of outward facing, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take what I've got and conquer the world with it. Instead of saying, what can I learn from what's going on in these local markets? I think that companies that invest in a local market will gain more than the investment. Uh, in as they as they learn things from that local market, and if we, if you're trying if you're looking for true innovation, looking at your peers doesn't do you any good. So if I'm Coca-Cola and I look at Pepsi for innovation, I, I'm not going to learn anything. 
But if I look at uh, AJE, which is another cola company uh, headquartered in Peru, I might actually learn something from them. Or, uh, you know, just that outward focus on on cool companies that are in emerging markets, they tend to ha- they tend to be uh, more hungry and tend to be a lot more innovative in doing uh, amazing things. So another great example I love is um, M-Pesa, which is a mobile payment system mm-hmm. uh, started by Safaricom and Vodacom in Kenya, and we have the U.S. now has something similar. Um, through Venmo uh, or uh, Zelle, which is the, you know, so you can transfer money between friends with just your phone. But uh, M-Pesa is still more elegant. It's extremely simple. It's very easy to use. And it allows transactions in a much more secure way than was possible in in Kenya before. And so it's literally changed the whole economy. It allows people to not carry cash, but be able to transact things quickly and efficiently as if they had a bank, even though they don't have a bank. And so Safaricom, the, the mobile carrier at Vodacom, the, you know, the joint venture partners, have become, in effect, the bank of Kenya. And everyone uses, uses their phone as their bank. And it's, it, it has a profound impact. Um, that couldn't happen in the U.S. because we would be worried about banking regulations and flow of money and, you know, can can would that then classify the the phone company as a bank and then they'd be a subject to all these different regulations and so the phone company probably wouldn't want to do that and so you get into this host of constraints which are they're not real they're i mean they're real in the sense that they affect businesses but they're not real in the fact that they don't really add value per se to innovation they're they're constraining what uh innovators can think of rather than saying what would be the ideal? What would be the optimum here? And when you get to these uh, emerging markets, there's often no institutions whatsoever. And so it makes it so that you can just pause and ask the question, what's the ideal? And then propose a solution that's, that literally is the ideal. And, and you get cool innovation when you start to, th- you start to think in unconstrained ways. Interesting. Well, that's all for now. For more information about global business and culture, visit www.internationalhub.org and be sure to subscribe to Cultural Conversations with International Hub. Thank you.